one thing we need to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, which we're learning today, is that He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give Himself a ransom for many. And we want to lay down our lives for our brethren and thus have what the Bible says is one of the surest assurances of eternal life in 1 John 3 and 4. As I open this second sermon from Romans 16, I'd like to start by just reminding you of this text from Psalm 138. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Father in heaven, we worship toward thy holy temple and we magnify and glorify thy great name, Jehovah, and the name of thy Son, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. At the same time, we are reminded by this text that you have magnified your word above all your name. Your word, the inspired scriptures, the Bible, reflect your character of a true and righteous and just and perfect and holy being. And we thank Thee for the words of truth, yea, the certain words of truth that we have in the Word of God, including Romans 16. Bless us now as we humble ourselves before each word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Romans 16. You know, this passage of Scripture should not confuse us because when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as has been taught many times from this pulpit Matthew chapter 25 says that he will bring up clothing houses food drink and visits so be excited that the Lord in grace and mercy has brought Romans 16 to us today so that we can remedy whatever might be lacking in our lives, lest we get to that day and we say to the Lord, when were you ever hungry? When did I ever need to visit you? And he says, because you didn't do it to one of these, the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you want to know more about Him. The evidence, the greatest evidence of eternal life is love. It is not faith. Devils have faith, but devils do not have love. The greatest change in a human nature is not to believe, it's to love. May the Lord help us from these reminders in Romans 16. Let's go to verse 9. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ. And Stachus, 
my beloved. First of all, Urbane. Paul identified a person in the assembled congregation of the Roman believers that he wanted the rest of that group to salute. Salute Urbane. Urbane was a helper for Paul and others. By the word helper, similar to what Eve was created for. What was every one of you wives created for? To be a helper to your husband. Your desires are to be to your husband. You don't have independent desires. Not if you're a Christian wife. You are to be helping your husband. You're to be his cheerleader. You're to be supporting him in whatever he has set his heart and his mind to do. And so Urbane was that way for Paul and other ministers of the gospel. The help wasn't just merely carnal help, but rather help in Christ for the kingdom's sake, to help promote the kingdom. You know, ministers have at least enemies. Ministers have enemies, especially if they've been righteous ministers and preached the truth and prosecuted the truth. They have problem members that take their time and their minds. They have takers in the churches of Christ. They have average members, and they have helpers. And Urbane was a helper. Praise the Lord for Urbane. I don't want to overlook Urbane. So I just want to say his name and for all of you to think, am I up to the level of Urbane? Am I a helper? Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ. It's a shame that this poor name has been picked by eight popes over the last 1,500 years, all the way up to Pope Urbane, Urban VIII. Poor man. Poor name. But we know that you, Urbane, rank far above those other eight. And we're thankful that you were a helper in Christ. Take us, my beloved. Here's Paul's personal affection for another person in Rome that he had known in in the other churches and that had moved to Rome without mention of any help or service, though it's implied and understood, isn't it? Because if Paul loved Stachus, Stachus was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, or Paul wouldn't have loved him. Verse 10, Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. That's a nice statement, isn't it? You know, there are, there are a couple of expressions here, and we're going to see them at some other places in the Bible if I make reference to those cross-references, that sometimes it's nice just to identify each other as our position in Christ. To, to write, you know, when we say brother, you know, that is just not a generalized formal term of endearment or friendship. Brother, we're all in the family of God. God is our Father. He's adopted each of us and put us by hand selection and the power of His sovereign will into His family. We are blood brothers. We are adopted brothers. We are brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with the Son of God. And so those things, when we say brother, I hope that we remember that it's not just a term used in our society because it isn't. In Paul's society, it was more generally used for anyone that was a Jew. But we use it with very special meaning. And here in this place, the expression that is used is approved in Christ. So this Apelles was a servant of Christ and a servant of the churches and a servant of Paul and had met with men's approval and God's approval in performing his service. He was an approved servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a nice thing for Paul to say in public to the church at Rome on how they ought to view Apelles. 
You know, in Romans 14, since it's nearby, we'll look at this reference. Romans 14, verse 17 is the verse we know so well, and that I hope you'll remember about Christian liberty. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Three things. Verse 18, For he that in these things, those three things of righteousness, peace, and joy, is acceptable to God and approved of men. Do you want to know how easy it is to be accepted of God and approved of men? Righteousness. You live a righteous life fulfilling God's law and will for your life. Peace. You make peace with everyone and there's no animosity, bitterness, disagreement, resentment, or grudges. And joy. You are a happy Christian. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And you create those things and promote those things in the church. And if you do that, the verse says, you're acceptable to God and approved of men. And so was Apelles. There in verse 10, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. Here we have a man named, and he is not specified, but those in his household are specified. Notice that. Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. This man was well known. Who knows? He could have been, a, he could have been the mayor of Rome. He could have been some senator. He could have been some important person that wasn't even in the church. He could have been a church member that had died. See, we're not told these things. Aristobulus could have been a church member at Rome that had died. And so now there's just reference made to his family, but they're using the surname, or in this case, the first name of this man to reference his children or grandchildren that were in that church. We don't know. But I know what it does say. It says this, salute them. Is them a plural pronoun? Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. Does Paul ever use a statement like this when he's referring to Caesar's household? Was he making any reference to the fact that Caesar had been converted? No. But he's referring to some that were members of Caesar's household that had been converted. And it's plural again. So in this man's family tree, there was at least two and maybe more that had been converted. Siblings. Other relations. Family. Family is our first obligation in sharing the gospel, like Andrew did for Peter. I hope you'll remember John chapter 1. We want to be concerned about souls one at a time, starting with our own family. Lord, help us to that end. Verse 11, salute Herodian, my kinsman. We don't know what kind of a kinsman this was. We understand it as a man, or he would have said kinswoman, because kinswoman is in the Bible. So this was some male, Herodian, that was a kinsman of Paul's. He didn't say he loved him. He didn't say he had been noble for much labor. He just says, salute him. There are varying degrees of salutation. And if there is any general trend in this list, it is from the greatest to the least. As you'll notice as we come toward the conclusion. Salute Herodian. My kinsman. He's a closer relative than just being a Jew because there's other Jews in this list that he hasn't mentioned as kinsmen, like Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 11, Greet them. There's that them again. Greet them that it be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. There's family members again. 
And we want to see that. Election tends to run in families. We see that in the Bible. The seed of the righteous will be blessed. There's a number of verses that I could pull together right now to remind you of that fact. We want to be thankful for that. And we want to trust the Lord and seek the Lord so that His election will run in our families. So we see these plural pronouns being used where the apostle does not list their names. He just lists the names of a family tree. Narcissus. He's got plural members of his family that deserve to be commended. And so he says, greet them which are in the Lord. There are members of that family. He could again have been a senator of Rome that had converted family members. And so there's greetings extended to them. So the apostle is saluting and he's greeting. And the two words mean the same thing. It's to accost a person with friendly words of social, of social acceptance and introduction. To greet or to salute, there's no difference. The Holy Spirit just bounces back and forth in various formations down through this passage. But this household of Narcissus had plurality of Christians in it. You know, there are some in this room that have been plucked like brands out of families. Praise God for that. And may from their point on, there be a plurality of saved souls beneath them and below them and from them and most of all, because of them, under God's grace and by God's grace. Verse 12, Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa. We would believe that those are two ladies. I want the women to notice all the women here. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa who labor in the Lord. Are you a laborer in the Lord? I had two young ladies around 8 to 11 speaking to me at break time today. And I was reviewing with them a few examples of things that they could do even at their age. We have the means to do things that no one else has ever had before that in just a little while, they could establish reputations that would justify them being in Romans 16. And as they got older, just think of what reputations they could have. This is what we want to teach our children. It is so much more than reading, writing, and arithmetic. R.G. Letourneau didn't need reading, writing, or arithmetic. Read Read that book. And find out about him when he was called by his banker because a partner left him with a loan in a business. And he went in and said, what are you going to pay for it with? And he just held out his two hands and said, I'll pay every cent of that loan. And oh, did he ever pay it. And did the Lord ever pay him back. But we want to serve Jesus Christ's kingdom. What do you teach your children? A good practice, and this is not the first time it's ever been mentioned in this church, is on Sunday mornings your children ought to be given assignments of other children or adults that they need to go seek out when they come into this meeting place and ask how they are doing and to converse with them, to learn to think outside themselves, to serve, to be interested in others, to esteem the things of others more important than our own things. See, that's a rule of Christianity which makes it more important than an axiom of geometry. The amount of time that is spent on the axioms of geometry which in most cases will never be referred to again, is appalling with the little bit of time that is spent on teaching graciousness and true Christian service and neighborly love and learning how to think about others as being more important than you. 
If you can get a teenager to think about others as being more important than they are, you will save that teenager. Teenagers are narcissists. All they can think about is themselves. But if you can teach them what Romans 16 teaches, what Romans 12 teaches, what the rest of this epistle in the second half has taught us, you will save them. It is when a teenager starts thinking about their life and thinking about what they wish was different that they get discouraged and or depressed and or rebellious because after all, it's the parents keeping them from the ideal life they could have if they didn't have those hindrances of those two parents. But if those children are thinking outside themselves about others, it is a fulfilled life to love God and to love others and to forget yourself. Your thoughts, your life, your things are garbage in comparison to the thoughts and lives and words of others and to seek them out and to serve them. And all the way down through this, it is who bestowed much labor on us. Mary was more concerned about the Apostle Paul. These family members of Narcissus were more concerned about others who labored for others. There is so little of this taught in the 168 hours or in the 30 hours that you send your children to school and the 10 or 15 hours of homework they do, how much is about loving others, serving others? I'm thankful that I grew up in a household and though it took a long time to take root because I'm a slow learner and the most selfish human being God ever created, I'm thankful that I grew up in a household where everything was about others. Verse 11. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Verse 12. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Now, in the second half of verse 12, Persis is given credit in two different ways ahead of Tryphena and Tryphosa. Should we worry about that? Should Tryphena and Tryphosa worry about that? Or should Tryphena and Tryphosa be thankful that there's someone like Persis? And should they try to be like Persis? Because notice, it doesn't say salute Tryphena and Tryphosis, my beloved. It just leaves out the love. And it says they labored in the Lord, but Persis was beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. I want us to think upon, why are these words in the Bible? I meant what I said. I love every word of the King James Bible. And when it says much, I want to stop right there and think, why did the Holy Spirit say much for this Persis, but didn't say much for Tryphena and Tryphosis? And Paul loved Persis in a way that he didn't love Tryphena and Tryphosa. Well, Persis must have been special. Praise God for special people like Persis. Oh Lord, help me be a special person like Persis that I will not just be a Tryphena and Tryphosa. You know, for the most part, Christians need to look way up there to even be able to see on the ladder of success in the kingdom of heaven, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Most Christians have to look up and they see the backside and bottom side of Tryphena and Tryphosa. But Tryphena and Tryphosa should want to be Persis. We should want to put forth the effort because we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. These people weren't serving Paul. They were serving Christ. 
We don't serve each other in this church in the ultimate perspective. We're serving Christ. We don't give money to anyone or thing. Primarily we give to the Christ. Even if we were to give money and we were to be taken advantage of, we have given it to Christ. And He only expects our reasonable best and we go to bed and sleep on it. And we don't worry about it because we're serving Christ. Don't you love Persis? We just want to stop and think about what did Persis do to get this kind of special treatment out of Paul in the second half of his list? Praise the Lord for men like Persis. I want to be like Persis. I want to slow you down. Are you like Persis? He's saying it doesn't really matter. I just warned you, Matthew 25 says it matters in the great day when the sheep run his right hand and the goats run his left hand. It's going to matter. Jesus is the one that gave the five, the parables of the talents, the parable of the pounds. The five turn into ten, the two turn into four, the one not invested. Jesus is the one that said, cast him into outer darkness. I didn't say any of that. The high king of heaven said it. I'm his ambassador. I'm conveying the message to you. You have today. He's giving you grace and mercy today. Will you serve others more in the next 168 hours than you have in the past 168? May God help you to that end. May God help me to that end. Verse 13, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord. You know, we're all chosen and sometimes it's good just to think about that fact that we are all chosen in the Lord. The Apostle Paul would do it this way in Philippians chapter 4 when he's writing, I want to show you that sometimes he doesn't mean chosen to the ministry or chosen to some special job, but the fact that we're all chosen in the Lord. In Philippians chapter 4, Here's Paul in the list of some commendations, and he says in verse 3 of Philippians 4, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. So that's a general thing true of all of us. And so when we're talking to each other, we should be remembering that all of our names are in the book of life. Our husbands told to remember that about their wives. That intimate relationship that was based on some form of dating and or courting, when two people came together and decided to live together for the rest of their lives, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3, 7, to remember that they are heirs together of the grace of life. Husbands are to remember that their wives' names are written in heaven right alongside theirs, and it doesn't have an asterisk. Meaning, down at the bottom of the page, just a woman. There is no such thing as just a woman in the way that we're supposed to look at our wives based on 1 Peter 3.7, based on Philippians 4.3, My yoke fellow, treat those women well that labored with me in the gospel whose names are in the book of life. And so we come back to Romans 16 and we find the expression, Rufus chosen in the Lord. We've been all chosen in the Lord. That we should love each other because we are a very special group of people chosen in the Lord by God's grace toward us. Now Rufus, look at this Rufus. Here in verse 13, salute Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Are there two mothers? Are there two mothers? Rufus' mother and Paul's mother. Or is there one mother of two brothers? 
so that Rufus is Paul's brother? Or was Rufus' mother such a good woman that Paul counted her as a mother in the kingdom of heaven? I choose the latter. Because if I choose the first two, he wasn't very kind to his mother, and he never mentioned Rufus as his brother. Even though he's been listing kinsmen all the way down through this passage, he never says anything about Rufus as his brother. You, you know, we've got to make choices on these. And do you know what? In this particular passage, it doesn't really matter that much. All we want to know is Rufus was chosen of the Lord, and he had a very special mother that made it into the passage as well, at least. I don't want to spend more time on that, or we're all going to go home wondering about Rufus and his mother. Was there two mothers? Did Paul have a brother named Rufus? Or was there a special woman that was the mother of Rufus? And Paul counted her like a mother in the kingdom of heaven. Does it say to do that anywhere in the Bible? In Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 30, those that forsake mother and father, will God replace their mothers? In the kingdom of heaven, yes. In 1 Timothy 5.2, how are older women supposed to be addressed by ministers of the gospel? As, as mothers, the older women, the younger women as sisters. So let's go on. Verse 14. I'm sorry if I disappointed you by not waxing long and eloquent about Rufus and his mother in verse 13. Every mother in here, though, every grandmother in here, this passage is given to us for reasons. I want you mothers to be provoked. What have you done with your sons and daughters? What are you doing with your grandsons and your granddaughters? Are we helping them in every way possible to be servants in the kingdom of heaven? Right. So, that, so that an apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying things like this. His mother. His mother was to be noted in that assembly, the mother of Rufus, by the mighty apostle of the Gentiles. Are you a mother that is worthy of note that if the apostle were here, he would look at your children and your grandchildren. And when he went away and wrote a letter to other churches that would be read in all of Christendom for 2,000 years, all the churches of Christ of 2,000 years, that was a holy mother there in Greenville. It's yours for the taking. There's 168 hours between now and next Sunday. Can you allocate a little bit more time to churning out servants in the kingdom of heaven? Exciting, isn't it? Amen. Talking to you. I won't name you. For all of us. I have a pretty big family. I'm as convicted as anyone. Right here, I'd like to say that I had a mother that loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was the mother of another son who was the best brother that anyone could ever have. My brother Paul is unbelievable. And my father... You know the conversations that you and mother had when we were born about what we should be named and how he was going to have a different name, but you ended up giving him the name of Paul. 
and the relationship that you hope that your sons would have. He is a wonderful, wonderful brother, church member, and friend to me, and everyone in here knows that. His servitude to the church, His servitude to me, His encouragement to me, and I never say anything because I'm a selfish, unthoughtful pig by nature. But I have a fabulous brother. And we had a fabulous mother. And we have a great father. And Dad, I didn't mean anything by using fabulous and then great. I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for you, my brother. When he prays in the back room, I almost lose it every time. When he thanks God for the man of God that he's put over us, he's my brother. He should resent me. He should envy me. He should be irritated by me. I irritated him plenty when we were younger. I love my brother. And I commend him in Jesus Christ for being a great servant of this church and a great friend and help and encouragement to me. Always, without exception, even when I lose it in our phone conversations, when I'm discouraged, he keeps me balanced. That is not in my notes. But it was in my heart before today. Thank you. Salute Rufus, chosen the Lord, and his mother and mine. In this case, it's two brothers with a mother. Newell and Stephen, may God bless you to be brothers like that. Matthew and Orville, brothers like that. Stephen and Adam, brothers like that. Mark and Matthew, brothers like that. And this whole church. Alex and Austin, brothers like that. Chris, Eric, and Jonathan, brothers like that. With a holy mother. You mothers of those sons, praise God. This, we're not going to race through this passage and flush it as something unimportant. We're going to look at every word of it and see what we can draw from it for the conviction of our hearts and the betterment of our families and the glory of Christ by having a better church because of it. Verse 14, Salute, Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. You know, he's he's reached the place now where though he lists five names, and he's going to list five more names in the next verse, he just attaches a group of plural brethren with them in verse 14, and a plural group of saints instead of brethren with those in verse 15, the implication is these were church leaders of some sort, bishops, deacons, even women that were helping in a church, and those that were with them. The great metropolis of Rome could easily have had a number of congregations. There is no place in this epistle where it says the church at Rome, like it says at some of the other cities. And remember, we've already had one church up there in verse 5. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So there could have been several because he reaches a place where he just says these five names. Asyncretus, we don't want to forget him. Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. So see, there's plural brethren with the plurality of those five. That could have been a church with its leadership. And those were the church members. And so there would have been a segment 
in this great assembly, if they came together in one place, all of them, that would have been these five and the brethren with them. Then verse 15, Salute Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, his sister, a brother and a sister. Do we have any brothers and sisters in here? Oh, yes, we do. Oh, Lord, bless them to be great brothers and sisters. And all the saints which are with them. So there's five more names mentioned, and even a woman. But remember, they're servants of the church. Like Phoebe was a woman that was a servant of the church at Sancria. That doesn't mean she was a pastor. That doesn't mean she was a deacon. But she was important enough for Paul to call her a servant of the church, which is at Sancria. So this very well in verse 15 is another group that met in Rome that were their own local church, but were part of the believers that made up all the believers in the metropolis of Rome. Which brings us to the last two points. What name is conspicuous by its absence? Amen, brother. What did he say? Peter. There's Peter. Sitting on the high throne of the Catholic Church. Holding the keys of the kingdom of the heaven, of heaven in his right hand that he's, that he's had ever since Matthew 16. The vicar of the Lord Jesus Christ. God on earth. And Paul doesn't even mention him. That is a disgrace. That is so disappointing. The original Catholic encyclopedia says that Peter reigned as Pope from 33 A.D. to 67 A.D. as head of the Roman church. Where is he? Every time our brother Stephen gets up here and gives a murder, they gave their lives at the hands of a church that claims that they are the successors of Jesus Christ through Peter. And Paul, our apostle, when he wrote that city, doesn't even mention Peter. The date of this epistle is approximately 60 A.D. Peter should have been well established on the papal throne. The Swiss guards were keeping him safe as he strolled the halls of the Vatican. Paul, throughout the catalog of names in this chapter and throughout the whole book, makes no mention of Peter whatsoever. We speak in behalf of the martyrs that have gone before us who died at the hands of that church and who denied that it was a church of Jesus Christ. If Peter were not at Rome, papist claims to Rome's ascendancy as the most important church, Peter's supremacy above the apostles, and uninterrupted succession all fails and falls flat to the ground. If Peter were ruler at Rome, Paul would no doubt have listed him first and far above others noted among the apostles. Peter wasn't noted among the apostles. As the chief bishop of Jesus Christ and the sole possessor of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Paul took no note of it. It's a wonder that Paul called on the brethren here in the church at Rome to remedy the disorders that were among them instead of expecting Peter to do anything toward that project. Some of you may not appreciate what I'm doing right now, but we stand in 2,000 years of history where Baptists like us, the poor and benighted souls of the earth, have known that we had the truth of the gospel and they did not. We have an apostle, and he's the greatest apostle, and it's Paul, not Peter. And he's the apostle of the Gentiles. Should we surmise that Peter was on a sabbatical and the great church was presently meeting in the home of Aquila and Priscilla? 
Yes, your pastor had fun at this point. There is no Bible evidence of any sort that Peter ever visited the city of Rome or had anything to do with any of the converts there. We do find Peter in 60 AD writing his first epistle and in chapter 5 and verse 13 saying, The church which is at Babylon saluteth you. Oh, you're kidding me. Peter, the apostle, was way over in Mesopotamia in the city of Babylon? Yes, that's where he was and that's where he wrote the first epistle. Now the Roman Catholics have only one place in the New Testament where they can ever get Peter out of Jerusalem. And it's 1 Peter 5.13. Do you know what the whole on? Do you know what they do there? They say, see, it's Rome under the name of mystical Babylon. And, and we say, Amen. Because of Revelation 17.5, Mystery Babylon, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. That's how low they'll stoop. They will place themselves and their whole church in the infernal regions of hell in order to put Peter on his chair in Rome. Oh, the truth is so sweet. Peter was in Mesopotamia. Where had all the Jews been captive before Ezra and Nehemiah brought back a small little band of 42,000? Babylon. Did they all come back? No way. Many of them stayed. Does it say on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that there were men dwelling in Jerusalem that were out of Mesopotamia? Yes, it does. Peter would have met them on the day of Pentecost. Peter goes back, forms a church there in Babylon, and writes his epistle from Babylon. How far is it from Rome? 1,800 miles, the way the crow flies, and no one back then used crows for flying. It was a terrible long journey to get from Babylon to Rome. I thank God for His Word. I love every word of it. And when I find Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13, it should light you up as it does me. I thank God for that. Peter was a minister of the circumcision, not the uncircumcision. So he's over there in Mesopotamia with the Jews that were left over from the Babylonian captivity. He's not in Rome with Gentiles. That's Paul's business. Because when he was in Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, they had the right hand of fellowship, which was Paul would go to the uncircumcision and Peter would go to the circumcision. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Amen. Especially those deluded devils that make up the teachers of the Roman brothel. Verse 16, salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Paul has just laid on this church a great obligation to embrace and love each other by going through this long list of Jews and Gentiles and expressing his love, his great love, their service, their much service, that they're in Christ, that they're approved in Christ, that they're chosen in Christ. And so with all of this fanfare, and all of this listing of names on both sides of the aisle, he says, salute one another. All of you, one another. Remember, when we have that compound pronoun, one another, this is something that each church member should do toward each church member. Every church member should do toward each of all the rest of the church members. One another. 
salute one another. The churches of Christ salute you. All the other Gentile churches that I represent, they are saluting you. I have saluted Jews, I have saluted Jews and Gentiles and commended them and expressed my affection by this letter. This church, I hope, had tears running down their eyes like Philemon did when Onesimus stood on his doorstep and handed him the Philemon epistle. This is the Roman epistle being read. And these people had not received each other. They were destroying each other through matters of Christian liberty and the abuses thereof, like Romans 14 describes. And the Apostle Paul has worked it up to a feverish pitch. Salute one another. I've just shown you how to do it. All the rest of the churches that I represent are saluting you. Will you salute one another? Then he says, salute one another with an holy kiss. Very briefly and we finish. Let me just start out with a summary. I believe that in the days of the apostles, that kissing each other was a form of greeting because we can read about it in various places in both both testaments as a description of what took place when close friends met each other. It is mentioned five times in the New Testament. I've preached this four times before. This is the fifth time I've preached it. I preach the same thing that I've always preached. I've preached what I, what I had conveyed to me by ministers before me. And you all know that you have never seen a Baptist church where they all kiss each other. I believe that this kiss is simply part of the cultural times that they lived in, that we should embrace each other warmly and affectionately and friendly like we do in our society, but it generally does not involve a kiss in our society except between parents and children and very close friends that are unusual. (laughs) Kissing just isn't done that much in our society. Now, now brethren, this is what I believe the, the worst case can be. The worst case is that I'm wrong. And that I should take a stand like Nehemiah and say the men before me and all the Baptists that I know are all wrong. And we could institute the Feast of Booths that hadn't been celebrated for a thousand years. But I want you to remember something. That there were Davids, and there were Solomons, and there were Hezekiahs, and there were Josiahs that never observed the Feast of Booths. And God loved them and thought they were perfect ministers. And never was that brought up. I believe there are reasons, convincing enough from Scripture, that we don't go around kissing each other. We don't even know how to do it. How long should I kiss your wife? Should it be with a full body embrace, a peck on the cheek, or mouth to mouth? How long am I going to let you kiss my wife? Where will you kiss her? Should your wife kiss my feet and cry over them like women did the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason I'm asking these questions is not to be crude or rude. It's to do this to you. You don't even know how you would do it. Because it's not a custom in our time. They didn't didn't need any instruction on it. They knew exactly how to kiss, how long, how many kisses, what part of the body they kissed, and whether you kissed women or not, And if you kissed women, how you did it discreetly. They knew all that. We don't know any of it. 
So just like foot washing, we thank the Lord that we wear closed shoes so there's no purpose for foot washing. Jesus knew there was no purpose for foot washing if people wore closed shoes. That's why He only washed Peter's feet because Peter had walked from the bath to the supper. And He said so. In John chapter 13, foot washing was a custom of that time. (laughs) Thank you for the reminder, Lord, of how gracious you've been to me today. (coughs) The Lord is good. He's always faithful. He's never forsaken me. And a little reminder once in a while is sweet. I hope I'm making sense very briefly because I want to finish. Foot washing was not an ordinance of the church. Foot washing was not to be perpetuated. You know, if we were to qualify widows out of 1 Timothy chapter 5 by foot washing as widows indeed, we wouldn't have any. You understand that? Why? Because we've made a distinction based upon social custom and we do the same thing with kissing. As children of God and saints in His church, all of this will be available on the internet within 24 hours. You can question me about any aspect of it that bothers you. I hope that you are content. I haven't seen any of you very eager to go and do this. And I hope that you have answers to a lot of questions if you ask me why we're not kissing each other. Because I'm going to have a few. Because I would like to know how I should administer it as a pastor. When somebody says that the kiss that was just planted on their wife's lips was not a holy kiss. Because that's what it's called in the Bible. I want to... This is frightening for me to do. I want to follow the Word of God. I will do anything that God tells me to do in His Word. But I will also uphold Baptist tradition for 2,000 years. And in this nation, and in most European nations, English-speaking nations, they don't go around slobbering on each other and call that affection. We do embrace and we do hug. Judas Iscariots can give kisses. But we want to be faithful And we want to practice this. And I believe the emphasis in verse 16 is salute. Salute one another. Greet one another. Embrace one another. We hug each other. We show our warmth and our friendship the way that we do in our society. And we don't go beyond it. As children of God and saints in His church, we realize that blood is thicker than blood. The ties of Christ are stronger, deeper, and more precious than family. So warm physical expressions of affection and unity should be pleasant, not painful. If we started kissing, it would be painful. It would be uncomfortable. It would be awkward. It would be irritating. It would distract our minds from the actual thing that we're trying to accomplish. We hug relatives and close friends, but we don't kiss them generally. We find that every one of these five times where we're told to salute one another with a holy kiss is at the end of an epistle. It is never in the apostles' teaching about love. It is never in the apostles' teaching about church unity. This wasn't back in Romans 12. I want you to think about this. i got a whole pile of them. and I, I want to quit! But it's my job to teach you, even though this is the fifth time I've done it. 1990, 2002, 2004, twice. Now it's 2014. Notice where these are at the end. Right. Have you ever written a letter or ever seen a letter where at the end they somebody will say, give everyone a hug for me? 
Ever seen an X and an O? I don't like to reduce the Bible to that. But for their times, that's what he was saying. I've just, I've just greeted and I've just saluted so many in your assembly. Now you show some of that same salutations and greetings toward each other and salute one another with a holy kiss. We don't even know how to do a holy kiss. It would be an awkward kiss, an uncomfortable kiss, a questionable kiss. It'd be a mess. We don't do it. And Lord have mercy upon us. If I'm, if I'm failing, show me. Cause I'll preach anything. Give everyone a hug for me. Beautiful. Thank you. We find little difference with the washing of feet. So as you think about kissing, think about the washing of feet. When I'm in John 13 or defending our lack of foot washing, I remind those, those people that are crazy about foot washing, you know what? They never deal with the five verses about kissing each other. Never. Just totally ignore them, reject them, blast them. Don't even believe that they're in part of the Bible. They never deal with them openly and honestly while they're pushing and forcing foot washing of clean feet in a society with enclosed shoes as an ordinance. Hypocrisy. We're going to be consistent with both by God's grace. We want to do more than shake hands for a handshake holds the other at a distance. And shaking hands is not considered a personal or intimate form of greeting or saluting among good friends. We do want to embrace and hug. You do not greet close family or dear friends with handshakes. Usually. You know, there's a lot of questions that can be raised if if we were to start down that path. How can we keep the designation of holy? If we lived in a country where kissing was accepted as appropriate greeting by intimate friends, we might well apply this passage differently. If we were in Italy or Russia or someplace like that, we would apply it. You know, we would know exactly how to kiss. France, they, you know, these countries know exactly how to grab a person by the shoulders and, you know, put their cheek up beside their cheek or their lips on one cheek and then go around and do it the other time. Or in some countries that do one, two, three. You know, it might be rubbing noses because we might be Eskimos. You know, if we had a giant igloo and it was our church, we might rub noses. And I'm not, I'm not jesting. We would do what that society showed as a special greeting, especially in public. We want to embrace each other. You know, when I'm out to eat with some of you and a waitress will ask me, are are you related? I always say, I don't care what color a person is. What age they are, that's my brother. Because that's how we should view each other, especially in public. In 3 John chapter 1 and verse 14, the, the, the warning, the instruction there, 3 John and verse 14, greet the friends by name. So, if we're going to follow the letter of the scriptures, then just before we plant the kiss, we have to say their name. Now, if you're kissing back, you've got to say the name too. Because in 3 John verse 14, we greet each other by name. So don't call me brother anymore. I want to hear it. Give me the sweetest sound in the English language. Jonathan. Ah, Lord, we love Your Word. And I hope that there's never been a church that loves every word of God as much as we love it. And if we don't love it enough, show us and we will love it more. 
we understand the emphasis to be on greet and holy and the kiss being their custom. Therefore, this church for this time is going to continue to apply this passage with regular hugging between those of the same sex and infrequent hugging and discreet hugging of those of the opposite sex, which is the more intimate form of greeting in our society and culture and far superior to casual greetings. Let us all be sober about this text and its cross-references. And my little illustrations were not to be foolish about it. My little illustrations were to show you that if we start to run down this literal trail in America in 2014, there are some hilarious consequences. Let us not jest about kissing. Let all be sober about the text and its cross-references for any foolish, light, frivolous, or mocking treatment of kissing based on the text shows too late of an attitude toward God's Word. I'm thankful they had such a warm society that they could express themselves that way. I sort of wish that we did because they were warmer than we Americans are toward one another. But may God bless the preaching of His Word and I am sorry to end on this subject. I hope that you'll remember Phoebe. Prisca, that's her nickname. It's in the Bible. Priscilla, the short form of it. Asynchronitis. Rufus. Junia. Mary, she bestowed much labor. May the Lord bless us to bestow much labor, to be diligent servants. Can you name the name of the family tree that addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints? The house of Stephanus. Second row, right-hand side. The house of Stephanus. I'd like to address each of you. If Paul, or better, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, in the great day, remember everything that we've done for others, may we be servants of the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by so serving them, serve Him, who will then say, well done. And that will be some greeting and salutation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. Amen.